Welcome to a new podcast from the Anti-Corruption Evidence Research Consortium, based at SOAS, University of London. My name is Jess Sinclair-Taylor, and I'm talking to Professor Mushtaq Khan, the Executive Director of SOAS ACE. Today we're talking about a sector where you've been doing a lot of work, Mushtaq, along with um, other researchers in the Anti-Corruption Evidence Research Consortium, but a sector which perhaps many of our listeners wouldn't particularly associate with corruption, which is skills development. Um, first, can you tell us what is the skills development sector when you're talking about a country like Bangladesh? Well, in developing countries, jobs are the most important problem and crisis. If developing countries can't create millions of jobs every year, they have explosive tensions building up in society. And ultimately, these feed into other problems that we think of when we think of developing countries like extremism, terrorism, political violence, instability, and so on. So at the heart of it is the challenge of creating jobs. And when you go to a developing country, you find employers saying, we would like to employ people, but they're not skilled. And skills don't just come from going to schools and colleges. A lot of skills are what are known as technical and vocational skills, which you have to learn on the job. And so there is another stream of, of learning, which are technical and vocational education establishments, which introduce people often from rural backgrounds and with no knowledge of industry into how a modern factory is organized, working in a production line, giving them skills on the job, learning by doing, using lathes, using cutters, using sewing machines, and so on who can then walk into a garment factory or an electronics component factory or something like that um, and understand what a modern factory is. So these agencies which provide skills are therefore a vital part of promoting jobs in developing countries. And billions of dollars are spent in countries like Bangladesh supporting these um, agencies and unfortunately, there is a lot of leakage and fraud in those sectors, which have quite significant implications for the skills that are produced at the end, the quality of those skills, and what happens to those people in terms of employment afterwards. So if we can't fix this problem, the implications can be extremely serious. And can you tell us a bit about how does that problem play out um, in practical terms in Bangladesh, what's the mechanism by which these leakages are occurring or how is this problem manifesting itself? So the issue is slightly different in different countries. Bangladesh has a very large manufacturing sector, which is thirsting for skilled people, particularly in the garments and textiles industry. And we know that when government agencies provide skills, there's a lot of bureaucratic waste and lack of incentives. So increasingly, there are private training providers who are then managed by international agencies um, or agencies within Bangladesh, and they are incentivized to produce skills that are linked to jobs. So typically what happens is that when a training provider signs up a trainee, one-third of their payment is given to them for that trainee at the point at which they sign them up. Another third typically is given to them when that trainee graduates from that program, which might be a very short program. It might be a month or two months. But the final one-third of their payment, which is where the profit comes from for the training provider, is given when 
the trainee actually reports having a job. So in theory, this creates very strong incentives for training providers to provide skills which lead to a job, and it should have solved the problem. And on paper, it looks like it's solving the problem because these training providers report their trainees have got jobs, and then they get their final third of their money. When you look at it in more detail and you start doing qualitative interviews with the training providers and so on, you find that actually a lot of the jobs that are reported are fake jobs. The trainees don't have jobs, but they are, they are reporting jobs to release their money. The training providers are reporting the jobs. So what we found is that we then did some random testing of the invoices that some of these training providers handed in, and we found that maybe 20, maybe 30% of the invoices on, on a random testing basis from some of these training providers reported jobs for individuals, and when you phone them up, they say, no, we don't have a job. So the invoices are fake invoices. Now, if, and, and, and we were looking at training providers who were linked to properly run programs funded by proper international um, development partners, not the fly-by-night types of training providers who get funding from governments and from other sources where we believe the fraud could be much higher than that. So a significant amount of resource wastage is happening. And then we started asking, why is this happening? Why are training, when on the one hand, you have companies saying we need skilled people, you have money for that, the training isn't very onerous, why is there still fraud happening on this kind of scale, which has such bad implications for the future of the country? And we found that the problem is actually very complex. There are different kinds of issues going on here, and not everybody is engaging in fraud for the same reasons. This is a common theme across the ACE research. We find that when people break rules, it looks like they're breaking the rules, but there are actually very different reasons for different people breaking the rules. And unless you can separate them out, you don't have an anti-corruption or anti-fraud strategy. So what we found is that some of these training providers engage in a lot less fraud than other training providers who are otherwise very similar because we picked training providers who had been certified by the same DFID-funded um, program, which looked at the capacity of the trainers and their qualifications before giving them the money. And yet some of them were doing, apparently, more fraud than others. So when you look at this in more detail, you have to go into all of the information on who they have trained and where they have gone. And a really fascinating story began to emerge. We found that those training providers who were lucky enough to be sending their trainees to high-capability firms, that is, firms which are very competitive and were selling high-value products to international markets. These were firms who had very good internal organization. They know how to set up their production lines. They know how to set up their quality control and management systems. When you send a slightly trained person to such a firm, they immediately recognize the value of that person and are willing to employ that person. Whereas, unfortunately, a lot of firms are badly organized internally. The management don't realize that they're badly organized, but you can see that they're badly organized by looking at the evidence of what kinds of products they export. And 
if a garments factory produces a very expensive shirt, we can assume that it's a very well-organized factory because to produce an expensive shirt, you need to have good quality control, inventory management, etc. And if you're producing a very low-value shirt in the same industry, we assume that this is not a very well-organized factory. It may have the same kinds of machines, but its organization is not as good. And you find that those training providers who send most of their work of their trainees to these well-organized factories actually do less fraud. And those who are sending their trainees to factories which have low-valued exports engage in more fraud. So then we went a little bit deeper and said, why should this be? And it turns out that the factories which are not so competitive and have low capabilities actually prefer employing people from the street because if they employ someone from the factory gate, they can pay them a slightly lower wage. Whereas if they employ a skilled worker trained from one of these agencies, they don't actually see an improvement in productivity because their factory is badly organized, but they have to pay a slightly higher wage. So they don't want to employ people who are skilled because not because they don't want skills, but because they don't have the capacity to use those skills properly. So you see the complexity of it is that some training providers are then forced to engage in fraud to release their payments, even though they have done their work properly, simply because on the demand side, the factories aren't employing their trainees. Now, this has a very important policy implication. And the policy implication is that if you simply send in random checking of invoices, which and, and we actually did that in our program, very soon the training providers will fix the system by telling their workers that you're going to be checked. Please report that you're in a job, otherwise we won't get paid. In other words, because the incentives are not aligned, checking and enforcement won't work because actually there is no solution to this problem without addressing the core of the problem, which is that you have to help the factories improve their capabilities so that they can actually use the skilled workers and raise productivity. And this is where I think this particular um, research is leading. We are suggesting that we need to rethink how we design skills programs. It's not enough just to train a few workers with skills. We have to improve the capability of the factories to employ those workers productively. And you know what the strange thing is, Jess? We found that in Bangladesh, there are those programs. There are programs which donors have supported, which raise the organizational capability of factories and provide skills at the same time. And when you do that, productivity goes up by 30%. Now, that is an incredible growth of productivity in a sector like the garment sector. But it's not seen as an anti-corruption strategy. It's seen as a productivity strategy. And what we are saying is that we should see this as an anti-corruption strategy as well. Because if you do that, our evidence already tells us that those training providers who provide trainees to the capable factories engage in less fraud. So this is a win-win solution. We connect the skills training program with small programs for raising the capability of factories in particular clusters. You will find significant growth in productivity. And at the same time, as a huge bonus, you will find a reduction of fraud done by the skills providers because the good ones don't have to engage in fraud. And, and this is where 
we are running ahead a bit, but this is our hope and our hypothesis. Once you have that, then the monitoring of invoices will actually work because the people who will be fraudulently misreporting invoices will be a small minority and other training providers and firms will point them out saying those are the bad eggs. Now you don't have that because there are too many people who are defrauding the system. And once you have that, you can't have a standard anti-corruption strategy. The standard anti-corruption strategy, which is about detection and punishment, works when a minority are breaking the rules. When too many people are breaking the rules, that strategy won't work. And this is at the heart of the SOAS-ACE approach. That's really interesting. And I can see why you need this alignment between the money you're spending on increasing um, people's employees' skills and the money you might be spending on increasing the capacity of employers to use those skills to increase their productivity, but also to help more people get better jobs. But I wonder if we run up against the problem of funding and where donors um, would like to spend their money in that it's more appealing for donors to spend money on skills development programs that give skills to well, ultimately some of the poorest people in the hope that they can gain better jobs rather than programs which are perhaps slightly less appealing, which are about increasing employers' capacity to use those skills, which are about ultimately helping com- companies to make more money. Do you think that's a problem? That's an excellent question, Jess. And I think this is exactly the kind of area where we need to talk to the stakeholders, including development partners, to come up with innovative ways of cracking the problem. I completely agree with you that it wouldn't do to go to UK taxpayers and say, are you willing to put some money into the hands of companies in Africa or Asia to develop their organizational capabilities? But it's much easier to go and say, shall we help some poor people get skills so they can get jobs, particularly if this is linked to security and anti-terrorism and all kinds of other things that we are genuinely concerned with. And I think the solution to this is to not think of everything as an aid-funded program. But development aid has to be linked with other sources of funding to make it deliver the bang for the buck. The example I mentioned earlier, where this Bangladeshi company combined skills training with organizational capability, was actually funded by a German development bank who financed this as a loan. It wasn't a grant, it was a loan. But the loan was a low interest loan and it helped that company to finance a quite significant organizational change within the company combined with skills training which generated so much productivity growth that they were able to repay the $1 million plus loan in a couple of years. So that is the kind of return you get. So We are not saying that the implication of this is that development partners now need to go into the business of giving grants for upgrading firms, but skills investments, the funds that go into skills training, need to be linked up with other sources of funding for organizational capability development of firms. That could be linking up with local banks. It could be with international financial institutions like the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank and so on. It could be loans from international development banks like the Germans have, which is part of their development effort. I think we need to be creative about how we need to do this. But what we are saying is that if you don't go to the root of the problem, which is that in developing countries, firms don't exist who can use the skills 
and use them productively and profitably, simply spending more and more money on providing skills, firstly, aren't going to create the jobs. Secondly, and paradoxically, might induce people to get on boats and try to escape to countries which have jobs. And you can see that on the southern shores of Europe right now. The people who are coming in boatloads to advanced countries are actually people who have some skills. The, the tragedy is that the developing country doesn't have the demand side for those skills, and yet we are spending more and more money producing more and more skills in these countries at that low level of skills. So we need to match the skills training with the demand side, the firms that can employ these people. Otherwise, not only is the skills training money wasted, we might inadvertently be building even more expectations that can't be met in these countries. And so it's precisely that joining up the dots that we're talking about, not saying this is all a problem of development aid. So I think we can see in that example, Mushtaq, the um, very strong links between anti-corruption and development outcomes, better development outcomes in poorer countries. And that your point exactly that corruption is not only an issue of justice, of rule of law, but also an issue of improving people's lives on a day to day basis and improving development outcomes. Um, but that also all sounds very ambitious, talking about changing the way development aid is spent or adopting different ways of um, giving financing in developing countries. What um, What is ACE going to do about that? What are your next steps? The general approach of the SOAS ACE um, program is that because a lot of the ideas we come up with on anti-corruption are quite out-of-the-box thinking, different ways of addressing the problem and finding solutions which create buy-in from within the sector or industry and create an interest amongst some of the stakeholders that it's worth pursuing this in their own interest. We have to sell this very actively because people often don't understand why this is anti-corruption or why this has an impact or what is the issue here. So in the skills program, we will work with and we are working with some of the training providers. And the training providers are very interested in what we are saying because they know that many of their colleagues are engaging in small or big or variable levels of fraud simply to survive, and many of them don't want to do this. They would rather be linked up with programs which allow them to send their trainees out and get a job immediately. Industry also is very interested, not just because they don't like corruption, but because they want to have productivity growth so that they can A, make more money, and B, because they, they can then pay the higher wages for which there is very strong demand in every country. There are very strong demands from workers for higher wages, but those higher wages can't be paid if there isn't productivity growth. So industry wants to have productivity growth. International development partners want to support job creation, and they want to have programs where their investment in skills actually create jobs rather than either fraud or trainees who don't have jobs but who are reported as having jobs through some kind of fraudulent process, because that is not just a waste of donor money, it's actually building up further problems with skilled unemployment, which is a huge problem in developing countries. So I think there are a lot of people who will be interested in this. And once we are able to show that there is a solution, we hope that the new forms of funding and joined up programming can emerge. And I think it's essential that it emerge because the problem is severe and huge in developing countries. 
You've been listening to the SOAS Anti-Corruption Evidence Research Consortium podcast. You can find out more about SOAS ACE at www.ace.soas.ac.uk or you can follow us on Twitter at ace underscore SOAS.